The Second Crusade has failed, but its end will open the door to the Plantagenets, that brilliant, avaricious, rebellious, murderous family that will dominate the history of Western Europe for a century to come. Here's their story, so riveting that we still are fascinated by it 900 years later. Welcome back as we enter a new era of Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story. An epic, true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Season 2, Episode 2, The Normans. They were a mongrel people, the Normans. Half French, half Viking. By the time Algonor knew them, they were rich, tough, powerful lusty and intelligent, and they'd made a brash, crude, brilliant, titanically energetic son named Henry. We will come to know him as Henry Plantagenet. His mother's people were the Dukes of Normandy, rulers of a big swath of land that rode the English Channel, strategically placed between Paris, Anjou, Iberia, and Britain. Never meek, They'd truly vaulted to the ranks of European powerhouses in 1066, when two magnificent warriors, William, Duke of Normandy, and Harold, King of the English, brought their armies to the coast of East Sussex, near a little town called Hastings. Very few things that happened almost a thousand years ago have stuck with us. Hastings is one of them. When the sun went down on Harold's battle-wrecked corpse, William had forever become the Conqueror. He and his family had won a king's crown for themselves, and an enviable one at that. England might be isolated behind its stormy coastline and might lack continental sophistication, but it had real bustle about it, with its forests and farms, its enviable sheep, and its busy trading networks that stretched from London to Kiev in Syria. The Norman dukes now added that up-and-coming side of the channel to their property in France. Everyone, including the Capets, took serious notice. Of course, the conqueror's mighty family soon had its own inevitable problems. The conqueror's eventual successor was his third son, Henry I., called Beauclerc, the fine scholar, who held Normandy on one side of the channel while he tried to digest England on the other. Unfortunately for the family's fortunes, while Beauclerc was quite capable of spewing out a battalion of some two dozen bastards, he had only one legitimate son. After a night of general debauchery circa 1120, the prince drowned just offshore, amidst the stupid, sorry wreck of the royal white ship. The news was staggering. The Normans, riding high the day before, suddenly faced the entirely unwelcome prospect of new challenges from all sides for control of their lands. Beauclerc no longer had a male heir, but he did have a royal daughter. Her name was Matilda. Eighteen years old when her younger brother drowned, 
she was a universally acknowledged beauty, as well as the widow of a holy Roman emperor. When the emperor died, he left his childless lady with few prospects at the German court. The former empress accordingly headed for home, regal head held high, accompanied by the mummified hand of St. James in her luggage as a souvenir of the imperial chapel. Matilda's situation when back among her own people was perplexing. Nothing legally prevented her from taking her father's double throne, but naming a female heir to rule over the rough lords of England and Normandy was a gamble. Beauclerc had little choice. He took the risk, naming his daughter his acknowledged successor to both Normandy and England, while demanding that his barons swear fealty to her. It was unprecedented. It was also decidedly unpopular. Beauclerc now made a second attempt to connect his family to the Angevins. He'd already seen to the marriage of his drowned son, the lamented prince, to an Angevin lady. The point of so much avid matchmaking was simple. The Angevin ruling family had hereditary right to the lovely Loire Valley, the Garden of France, and had made themselves a power to Normandy's south. The Angevins celebrated their success by building great fortresses at Chinon, Loche, and Loudun, and had hooks into Tours, a key regional market town. The current darling of the Angevins was Geoffrey of Anjou, who now enters the rowdy stage as Beauclerc's choice to be his daughter's new husband. Not only was he the heir of a wealthy, powerful family, but Geoffrey was apparently the dreamboat of his day, so outstandingly good-looking that the chroniclers called him Geoffrey Lebel. History would come to know him and his own heirs by another nickname, Plantagenet based on the lovely legend that he liked to pluck the showy yellow flowers from the broom plant, the Planta Genesta, to adorn his hats. By the way, to be honest, the legend might possibly be true. No one really knows if handsome Geoffrey adorned his hats, but the Plantagenet nickname, which we ourselves will use from here on to refer to Geoffrey and his heirs, wasn't settled on the family for another 300 years. One has to admit, it's a powerful story if it could last that long. Jeffrey's supporters, and he had many, would forever consider him not only incomparably handsome, but also intelligent, well-educated, a knight of outstanding merit, magnificent in his dress, refined in his habits, charming in conversation. His detractors, of which he also had many, would say he was cold, calculating, and entirely deceitful. Jeffrey's family also labored under what can best be described as a checkered reputation. While Jeffrey's relatives were fond of a family history, maintaining that their ancestral founder was a woodcutter's son who had won his first lands by beating off Vikings in the Loire Valley centuries before. Angevins in general were described by a respectable chronicler of the day as hot-headed looters 
who smelled bad, gobbled their food, assaulted innocent women, and often fell prey to the random impulse to ransack a church. Female members of Jeffrey's family particularly needed watching. One of his grandsires reportedly found his wife entertaining a goat herd. He dealt with it by having her burned at the stake, sadistically dressing her in her wedding clothes before the screaming, sobbing lady was set aflame. Breathless stories circulated that another forefather had impulsively married no less than Satan's daughter, a breathtaking beauty who had taken human form. Having graced her offspring with her fabulous looks, the lady's cloudy origins were revealed after she repeatedly refused to stay through the consecration at Mass, wrenching herself free from four knights who tried to hold her and flying off forever through a shuttered window. Spawn of the Devil or Not, Angevin beauty combined with strategically located fortresses had its way. Beauclerk went after an Angevin groom for his widowed daughter, despite the fact that his chosen son-in-law, Geoffrey, was all of fourteen, while Matilda, the bride-to-be, was twenty-five. Perhaps happy marriages are possible between fourteen-year-old boys with ancestral ties to Satan and twenty-five-year-old ladies descended from William the Conqueror and recently married to the Holy Roman Emperor. This was not to be one of them. Daughter and granddaughter of kings, heiress herself to two thrones, former empress of the Holy Roman Empire, Matilda was not exactly the mildest of maidens. She was credited with a winning personality, which supposedly combined royal arrogance with icy disdain for mere humans. To cap her wifely reputation, Matilda's marriage to the emperor had been childless. Gossip held that the man hadn't died at all, but had run away to escape her. She would seethe for the rest of her life that her second marriage was beneath her station. The English lords, induced to swear fealty to the lady three separate times in seven years, never liked her, and they didn't like her supposed right to rule. She was female. She was thought to have foreign ways, not surprising given that most noble wives were pledged in marriage from childhood and then sent off to grow up at their husbands' courts. In Matilda's case, among the stiff-necked Germans when she was eight years old. The new husband, yanked to the front of the line by the bride's father, did not solve Matilda's problems with her people. If anything, that choice made things worse. Neither the Normans nor the English could tolerate the idea of some boy from devil-birthed Anjou ruling them, which led to open rebellions on both sides of the channel. Sadly for both parties to this remarkable marriage, the normally chivalrous Geoffrey clearly disliked Matilda as much as Matilda disliked Geoffrey. The two were notoriously hostile to each other, to the point that one historian felt justified in writing that Geoffrey was never happier than when parted from Matilda. One might conclude he went out of his way to avoid her, 
the couple would not have their first child for seven years. Happiness was not, however, the point of this marriage. And quite a lot of pressure must have been applied to both, since they finally presented the world with their firstborn in 1133. Mercifully, it was a boy. He was named after his body grandfather, Henry Beauclerk, the man who had handed daughter Matilda and son-in-law Geoffrey the bulk of their immense fortune. When the little boy was two years old, Randy Old Beauclerk died. Unfortunately, he did not die on good terms with his daughter and her husband. No matter that she was her father's hand-picked successor, the family chill was a nice pretext for those who disliked her both specifically and generally. They rallied around a singularly lucky male cousin of hers, a gentleman who decided not to sail with the white ship the night it went down. His name was Stephen of Bois, who'd once been the first of the nobles to swear allegiance to his cousin Matilda at Beauclerk's urging. Well, that sacred oath turned out to be tissue thin. Within hours of the old man's death, Stephen engineered a medieval coup d'etat. Among other events put into motion with startling haste, one of the old king's stewards, a baron named Hugh Bigod, announced that he had been at Beauclerk's side as the man lay dying. Bigod maintained a straight face as he reported that on his deathbed, Beauclerk repented his earlier thinking about the succession and decided that Stephen was self-evidently the better choice to rule England. He was, after all, male. Beauclerk even had the presence of mind, according to Hugh, to think to release his vassals from their sworn vows of fealty to daughter Matilda. While this dubious story, distrusted even at the time, passed from hearer to hearer, Stephen moved with notable speed to make friends in London, collect the royal treasury, and arrange for his coronation. He had the advantage of living in an era when the laws about royal succession were unsettled in his part of the world. Nobles on both sides of the channel, including his older brother, gaped at his cheek, but they acquiesced to his daring. According to a chronicler, all the bishops, earls, and barons who had sworn fealty to the king's daughter gave their adherence to Stephen saying that it would be a shame for so many nobles to submit themselves to a woman. One does wonder what confessions were eventually heard across the breadth of Normandy and England over the breaking of so many supposedly sacred oaths of fidelity, protection, defense, and support to the lady. Those who believed testosterone and audacity the keys to governance had the pleasure of a great many tough years under Stephen of Blois, since his subsequent reign launched an era that ranked high in viciousness, even in the bloody annals of English history. King Stephen was not an evil man, but he was weak. Weakness created a vacuum at the top, one that spurred the country's more ambitious nobles to bloody rivalries and killing feuds. Walter Mapp, 
an English chronicler who wrote a history of the kingdom some years later, called the new king an idiota. Others, kinder in outlook, found Stephen unassuming, generous, and courteous. Regrettably, those sterling character traits existed side by side with a habit of giving up as soon as any difficulty appeared in his path. Matilda, cheated of her promised English throne, fought Stephen in a spasmodic civil war that would last the better part of two decades. Both of them claimed to rule. Both fought and burned and starved to impose their rule. But neither side could make its rule hold. Like all civil wars, this one between Stephen of Blois and Matilda was so borderless, so unpredictable, that men grew to fear leaving their own doorways. There were famines for the first time in memory. Scottish warriors and Welsh barbarians screamed across their borders to murder, rape, burn, wreck, and steal. There was much drama, including Matilda's legendary escape from a besieged castle across the snow, dressed all in white. But on the whole, the era was so awful that the English grimly referred to it forever after as the Anarchy or even more descriptively, as the shipwreck. Even the chroniclers fell largely silent, unable to keep pace with the horrors of their day. This wholesale strife and betrayal made up the world, which, in 1133, welcomed baby Henry Plantagenet, eldest son of Matilda and Geoffrey. While Matilda battled for her and her son's rights in England, her handsome, if unaffectionate husband Geoffrey LaBelle fought battles of his own to secure Normandy, the other lodestar of the Conqueror's legacy, and to hold his own inheritance of Anjou. He, too, had his hands full. Like the English, the Normans had rebelled against being ruled by Matilda and her husband, while back home in the Loire Valley, Geoffrey's younger brother actively caused trouble. Geoffrey always described as a superlative soldier, won his battles in Normandy and in Anjou, sending his annoying brother off to prison. Firmly settled as Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou, Geoffrey ignored his wife's struggles as she grappled with Stephen in England. Instead, LaBelle made himself a presence at the French court in Paris in his off hours. There were new rumors, tasty enough to endure for centuries, that he became Queen Eleanor's dashing lover, stories that neatly combined her supposed wantonness with his spectacular charm. Whether Geoffrey actually slept with Eleanor is unknown, as esteemed an historian as Simon Shama would say he did. What we do know is that Geoffrey felt sufficiently comfortable with his stature and prospects to suggest that his little Henry marry Louis and Eleanor's firstborn girl, the Princess Marie. Thanks to French law and custom, Marie would never rule France. She could only marry into another family. Yet her potential was breathtaking. 
Not only did she stand to inherit the Aquitaine from her mother, but she was a French royal. If Marie married Henry and the couple had a living son, that son's rights to France, the Aquitaine, Normandy, and Anjou would catapult the Plantagenets to seats at the very front of the house. Depending on what Matilda might yet be capable of in England, Marie's potential boy-child would possess the number one claim to both the French and English thrones, completing the incredible rise of the Plantagenets. Anjou, Normandy, the Aquitaine, England, and France swirled together into one breathtaking powerhouse, rich beyond compare, controlling everything between the North Sea and the Pyrenees, between Iberia and the Germans. People could get dizzy just thinking of it. Bernard of Clairvaux instantly and vehemently opposed the idea of Henry marrying Marie, insisting there was a bar of consanguinity between the two children. It was an interesting objection, given that noble families with consanguinity problems married all the time, but it held. Little Henry did not marry Princess Marie. The fates quickly backed away, biding their time. By 1151, the year Suger died in the midst of Louis and Eleanor's still unresolved marital problems, Henry Plantagenet was 18. The young man shimmered with potential. He was already the Duke of Normandy, which his father had ceded to him two years before, was in line to gain Anjou upon his father's death, and as Matilda's son was a prime contender for the still-contested English throne. He was, not surprisingly, quite the cocky young nobleman. One riveting example had taken place back in 1147, when young Henry was only 14 years old. He'd had the energy, not to mention the sheer audacity, to invade England with some friends and a few mercenaries hired on credit to help his mother. Regrettably, the young lord was not greatly experienced at managing an invasion. Twice defeated in battle and going broke, Henry was ultimately reduced to begging cash and supplies from cousin Stephen, who, even more incredibly, handed them over on the understanding that Henry promptly get himself home to Normandy. A more astute king might have thought a bit about the wisdom of letting this teenaged firebrand go. Now the teenage firebrand was grown up and about to change history. According to rules of fealty, the Norman dukes, Henry now occupying that role, were supposed to kneel before the French king, Louis Capet, to swear homage, but the adolescent lords skipped the ceremony. He was not unique. The more powerful dukes and counts were often careless in this regard, particularly the Normans. But Louis took offense to this infraction from such a young lord. Skirmishes between the French and the Plantagenets began to heat up. One involved a vassal of Louis, a baron named Gerald Berlai. Berlai had industriously built a very impressive castle in the jumbled borderlands of France, the Aquitaine, and Anjou. Double-walled, enjoying a protected water supply, 
with a defensive tower said to rise to the stars and a deep stony moat, Berlai's fortress was considered impregnable. This emboldened Berlai enough to make irritating forays into Norman territory. Geoffrey Plantagenet, La Belle, was displeased at such effrontery and spent three years laying siege to Berlai's great castle, but, true to its reputation, he couldn't take it. Geoffrey was stalled, but the man was a reader with a good memory. He thought to refer to the standard military manual of the day, one carried by every respectable general well into the 18th century, titled Concerning Military Matters, a 4th century compendium of Roman army maneuvers, it mentioned the famous Byzantine weapon called Greek fire, never yet used in Europe. The story is that the devil-sired Angevins under Geoffrey figured out how to make a reasonable copy of the stuff, which helped bring down the impregnable fortress. Unhappy Berlay was captured and sent to an Angevin dungeon. A feudal lord had a sworn responsibility to protect and defend his vassal. King Louis accordingly threatened war over his dispossessed and imprisoned baron. But by now everyone was living in the sophisticated second half of the 12th century. Rather than hauling out the siege equipment to batter a Plantagenet castle or two, the French sent legal summonses to Geoffrey and his son Henry, to appear before their liege lord, the King of France, and explain themselves. Bernard of Clairvaux was brought in to help settle the conflict, although Bernard, who had already pressed for Geoffrey to be excommunicated in the Berlai matter, was perhaps not the best choice to play mediator. For their part, Geoffrey and Henry proved hard to intimidate. The story is that they swaggered into Paris, dragging Gerald Berlai along in chains, a dead-on affront to Louis. This could scarcely be considered a promising start, but Bernard had spent his career tamping down fires. He offered to lift the threat of Geoffrey's excommunication once Geoffrey released Berlai. The deal was straightforward enough, and everyone undoubtedly expected LaBelle to readily agree. Instead, there's a story, riveting but possibly not true at all, that Geoffrey insolently informed Bernard that not only would he continue to hold Berlai, but the only reason he hadn't already hung him was that he, Geoffrey, was such a saintly lord. Geoffrey and son Henry then turned their backs on the entire French court and stalked out, Berlai still in chains. According to a 900-year-old memory, Bernard shouted after them in a fury that Geoffrey would die within a month. If at all true, everyone in that hall, including Louis and Eleanor, must have been transfixed. It's believed this marked the first time Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen of France and Duchess of the Aquitaine, and young Henry Plantagenet saw each other's face. Within a month, Geoffrey Plantagenet would be dead. The fates would raise their golden masks 
to laugh out loud. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Nabb. A big thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again December 25th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me. Until next time, thank you for listening.